You're listening to The Doctor's Companion, brought to you by InStockTrades.com and DCBService.com. Welcome to another episode of The Doctor's Companion. I'm Scott Corelli. And I'm Matt Smith, but not that Matt Smith. No more for MindRobber.net, the home side of MindRobber Productions, where we talk about all the things on podcasts, like this one, The Doctor's Companion, where we talk about Doctor Who, the Mind Robbers Versus, where we, uh, we, we tackle a show episode by episode. Uh, currently, we're covering Justice League Unlimited. Soon, we're switching gears to Veronica Mars. That's also where you can find our in-depth movie reviews of films that are in theaters, like Thor The Dark World or The Hunger Games Catching Fire. Then there's the Mind Robbers, our flagship podcast, uh, where we talk about everything else we could possibly want to talk about on a biweekly basis. If you like our shows, you should review them on iTunes. If you have questions, comments, or concerns, uh, email those to us, podcast at mindrobber.net. But if you want to start a discussion, uh, hop onto the website, leave a comment on the post of this episode so everyone can know what you're thinking. But most importantly, tell all of your friends uh, that you're listening to celebrate the 50th anniversary of Doctor Who, just like uh, we are. We're, we're celebrating by doing a countdown of all 11 Doctors. And uh, we, we talked about uh, the fourth Doctor uh, yesterday, um, along with uh, the night of the Doctor, uh, which was uh, really cool. Um, and uh, today we're talking about the third Doctor and a story called Spearhead from Space. Yes. Um, which, uh, you know, I, I, I have this funny feeling that there's, there's some sort of importance to this story. Matt? Yeah. yeah. Spearhead from Space. One of the most important stories in Doctor Who history. Um, and I'm not <laughs> just saying that. Like, I'd put Spearhead's up there with Earthly Child and Rose in terms of how important it is to the overarching narrative of Doctor Who. Um, and uh, to give you the background on this, I actually have to go back to season six. This Spearhead from Space is the kickoff to season seven, uh, which is the first John Pertwee story. So we're talking about the first John Pertwee story. We're talking about it because it's a... Uh, post-regeneration story, and those are always interesting. So that's why we're talking about it. Um, but to go background on this, Doctor Who basically was not being watched by a lot of people. at When you got to the end of the Troughton era, um, viewing numbers were really down. I think there were only, like, the War Games episode 10 was one of the lowest-rated Doctor Who stories ever, like, in terms of the sheer number of people who watched it. I think something like three and a half million people watched it. Like, it was watched less by people that episode was watched i think less than the people than the number of people that episode was watched by less people than the people who were watching the sylvester mccoy era just so we're aware like it was like that low um so it wasn't doing very well and it was suffering under the strain of like when doctor who was created it was designed to be a very cheap show to produce it was designed to teach kids about stuff it was designed to be like an educational like 
not Sesame Street show, but like a children's television program. And as it got more and more ambitious, uh, it became more and more unproducible just in terms of like, they were putting out an episode every week. They were putting out like 40 plus episodes a year, um, which is just madness. Um, and it got to the point where Patrick Troughton, who was doing the show and wasn't taking time off. Um, I think, you know, his, his first episode off was, yeah, Evil of the Daleks episode four. So he went almost an entire season without taking a day off. And then he wasn't in like the episodes that he's not in. Like you, there's not a lot of them. Um, so he was really tired and he was just like, I don't think I want to do this anymore. The scripts aren't good enough and I don't want to get pigeonholed into this role. So I want to go away. So the producer at the time, Peter Bryant was like, okay, well we're going to end the show. And, um, they're just trying to hold the show together um, for season six. So Peter Bryant is working with Derek Sherwin and Tarek Sticks. Derek Sherwin being the script editor um, under Peter Bryant. Peter Bryant was the script editor before he was producer. And um, they're like tossing stories around like Terrence Dix isn't uh, isn't script editing Space Pirates and Peter Bryant isn't producing the war games. So Derek Sherwin, who was the script editor, is producing. It's all sorts of craziness. Script War Games doesn't have a script editor because the script editor is writing it. It's crazy. So what happens is Derek Sherwin takes over as producer from Peter Bryant to produce the war games. And Peter Bryant and Derek Sherwin start working together to kind of figure out what this show is going to look like because they can't keep doing the show that is you know, really expensive, going to alien worlds. They need something that is a little bit cheaper. And what they come up with is they come up with this idea for this character who's recurred twice, um, named the Brigadier, Brigadier Lethbridge Stewart, who had previously appeared in uh, Web of Fear and the Invasion. And they said, oh, well, why don't we just put the Doctor on Earth? Because setting the Doctor on Earth will make things cheaper to produce. We can go to more locations. We won't have to build all these elaborate alien sets. We won't have to do bunch of costumes it'll just be a simpler easier show and we can just bring in this guy who we really like working with and he can be like a recurring character we can just lock the doctor on earth so they decide that they're going to do this um and what you have is you have Derek Sherwin, uh, Terrence Dix continues to be the script editor because he's a writer, and Derek Sherwin produces the War Games and Spearhead from Space, which makes him probably the greatest Doctor Who producer who ever lived, because no one has had that much consistency ever. Um, and <laughs> and uh, what you have is, um, you have basically this new pilot for what this show is going to look like, which is Spearhead from Space. Terrence Dix, who had been really impressed with the work of Robert Holmes, who had previously written the Crotons and the Space Pirates, he asked Robert Holmes if he'll write the opener, and Robert Holmes says, sure, I'll do that. Um, and so they set about starting to produce. They find a new producer named Barry Letts, who had previously directed Enemy of the World, um, to be like, hey, do you want to take over the show? And Barry Letts is like, sure. So over the course of Spearhead from Space, it's it's determined that Barry Letts is going to take over as producer, and Letts will be producer for the remainder of the season, uh, and as we know from retrospect, uh, the rest of the Pertwee era. John Pertwee is cast as, do as the Doctor. Troughton had considered con returning, but had just been like, no, I think I'm going to leave. And then Jamie and Zoe, uh, Fraser Hines and Wendy Padbury are like, oh, I'm going to go with it. So you have a clean break. No one's coming back who was on the show before. So you have a, basically a brand new show. And so they start uh, getting ready to produce this episode. And they find a director named Derek Martinus, who had previously directed a bunch of interesting stories. Uh, the Ice Warriors, Evil of the Daleks, uh, Tenth Planet. So, like, he's been around for a really long time, and he comes in and he directs this story. This ends up being his last story. And right before they start to roll cameras, uh, all the people who do camera work for video. So, like, all the, you know, because they were shooting Doctor Who on videotape, and then they were shooting uh, locations on film. Um... 
all of the people who shot on videotape decided we're going on strike and we're not going to shoot. So all of a sudden, uh, <laughs> Derek Sherwin and Derek Martinus have no one to shoot this story, but they can actually have all the film cameramen because those guys aren't on strike. So what happens is they just go, let's just shoot the whole thing on locations. Let's do no sets and let's shoot the whole thing on 16 millimeter film, which had never been done on Doctor Who before and wouldn't be done until, um, I guess the TV movie, um, where, you know, they would shoot things on. No, well, no. Yeah, no, they didn't shoot anything on film after this. Um, they shot locations, but it was always like a hodgepodge of different footage. So what they turn out is Spearhead from Space. And Spearhead from Space becomes essentially the pilot for the Pertwee era. It is a pilot in the very traditional sense of here's who we are, here's where we're going. And um, it is considered a very legendary story. It is the introduction of the Autons. Um, it is Robert Holmes really kind of putting his first mark on Doctor Who, uh, where the Crotons and the Space Pirates were like trial runs. This is his first opportunity to do something that is new and creative. Um, it is ridiculously iconic. It is a story that uh, John Barrowman, when reminiscing about Doctor Who, said that like his sister told him stories about how after he watched this story, he would just stand in front of shop windows to make sure that the mannequins weren't moving. Um, it is a story that is ridiculously important and ridiculously new in shaping how the show looks and does look for the next five years. Um, and that's kind of where it comes from. It's kind of crazy. Like all of this shouldn't have worked and yet it kind of does. Um, and that's this It's also, Oh, and also it's the, uh, introduction of, uh, Liz Shaw, who is designed as a companion who will be, uh, proactive and good and energetic and intelligent. Um, and I applaud them for that. So there it is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Whew. Um, I also, something else, um, too, I think it has a lot in common, or I guess it, I guess the 11th hour has a lot in common with this mm. story. I feel, um, I, I think that the two stories are very similar, um, in that they're both regeneration stories and they're both clean break new pilots, yes. um, in a lot of ways, uh, in the way that the first and second doctor sort of get lumped together as like one giant era in the way that the ninth and 10th doctors do. Um, and, uh, and I also think that it's interesting. It, it this, you, while you were talking, it made me realize that doctors one through five work as this weird palindrome <laughs> where you have like the first doctor who's like very, uh, very proper and not particularly silly, um, and has a large crew on the TARDIS, and all of his stories are very tightly linked, um, where one goes dives right into the next one. And then you have the second Doctor, who is all like, like really silly, and and has like all of these adventures um, with like crazy aliens, and it's and it's all it's all like really action based. And then you have. The third Doctor, the John Pertwee era, which kind of sticks out as like its own thing, and then you have the fourth Doctor, who is not unlike it, like goes right back to what the second Doctor did, and then you have the fifth Doctor, who is a lot like the first Doctor. It was just something I noticed while you were talking. I was like, "That's weird." <laughs> <laughs> I'd never thought of the the first five Doctors as like this weird palindrome yeah. thing. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, weird and, and weird. It makes sense because um, like, this is the the Earth based unit stuff is a reaction against the second Doctor, and then the fourth Doctor is a reaction against the unit base. It's like let's just react against each other, right. man. Like <laughs> it's interesting, right? Right, exactly. 
Exactly. Yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, Spirit from Space. Before we talk about it, I want to remind you that today's episode is brought to you by DCBService.com. DCBS is the site that lets you pre-order all your monthly comic book statues, action figures, anything you get from a local comic book shop. You place your orders three months in advance with monthly discount specials up to 75% off, regular discounts 40% off, and then you can ship as often as you like with orders as large or small as you like, and you only pay six ninety-five every time you ship out. So thanks to DCBService.com. Um, okay, so Spearhead from Space, this was when I started watching Classic Who again, because I had watched a lot when I was a kid, um, and so, like, I remember a lot of it, and I actually remember, I think I remember more John Pertwee than anything else. For whatever reason, his doctor stories always stuck out to me, um, more. I remember as a kid seeing the chase sequence in Planet of the Spiders on PBS, um, and thinking it was ridiculous even then. Um, but, uh, I, uh, uh, but this was like one of the very first ones that I watched. Um, when I, when I was like, you know, I want to get into classic who, like I love new who, and I want to see some of the old stuff. And this was one of the stories that was on Netflix and, uh, and I, it was autons and I'm, I'm pretty sure it might've even been the very first one that I watched because I knew that it was autons. I knew that it was a regeneration story. Um, and I was like, I was like, Oh, like Rose, you know? So, so I, I think I'm pretty sure it was like the first one that I revisited. And it's funny because at the time I was like, I was like, Oh yeah, there's some fun stuff here, but it's all very, it's all very, silly and classic and who and whatever um and i was very dismissive of it uh and then i watched it again for some reason and i was like oh wow this is really good but watching it this time i was kind of blown away at just how good it is and like what level this story is working on um just the idea that the doctor isn't the doctor until the very end of episode two is kind of impressive um, in a way that, I mean, I guess Castrovolva sort of does that a little bit um, as well, but I don't think it does it as, as cleanly here as it does, as it is here. Um, it's just, it feels very natural here. And then you just have just great John Pertwee mo- moments like him, like snatching his shoes and holding that, like just cuddling with them in bed. Um, and then you have his great fight with the tentacle monster. Ugh. Um, and like, there's so much good stuff here. Um, and, and you have like just those great Robert Holmes characters that Robert Holmes writes where he just, every story that he, he writes, he has these throwaway characters that are, that are just so like, just so well thought out and well formed characters, um, that are not meant to be anything more than what they are in that particular story. Um, and, and you have that again here and it's great. Um, and it's just like the way that it's structured is so good. Uh, and it's, it's, oh, it's just such a great regeneration story. Um, and just such a great story in general. And on top of everything else, we're watching this thing on Blu-ray and holy dear God, is it gorgeous? Um, just drop dead gorgeous of a story to the point where I'm watching this and I'm like, Oh, I desperately wish the whole John Pertwee era looked like this. Um, because I would buy all of it on Blu-ray. Um, because, Oh, it's so good. looks so good. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's really, really fantastic. I, 
I love this story. I think it's, I definitely think it's one of my favorites of all time. Um, so yeah, it's one that I will be revisiting all the time. <laughs> Absolutely. Definitely. I think that, and I, I 100% agree with you. Like I 100% agree with you. Like in the last episode I talked about how, um, uh, Brain of Morbius is in my top five Doctor Who stories of all time. This is top 20, which sounds damning, but it's not because there's just that much uh, Doctor Who out there. Um, this is top like 15 for me, um, which is really, really, really high. Um, and I think that this is the one, like, it's a story that is often pointed to, uh, one, because of the direction, but also uh, poster generation stories in classic who are not usually that good um i mean they're good but they're very rarely the best of their era um cash revolve is probably the best example of that where cash revolve is actually quite good and watchable but it's also you know it's got dull moments where it's just like this should not be as pretentious as it is right now i i would argue that robot is really good too robot robot's really good but robot also just feels weird um it's, it's good but the thing is that what robert holmes does here is holmes kind of sets the standard for the for the poster generation story and just to give you a little look behind the curtain or everyone a little look behind the curtain before enemy of the world was discovered we were going to do uh power of the daleks um as our post regen story and we didn't um because we got enemy of the world and i'd rather talk about that um because it's topical but power of the daleks is weird because it's not a regeneration story it's kind of like a disconcerting it's designed to make you feel really uncomfortable about everything that's happening whereas this is like a thing where this is just the gold standard for what you can do during a post-regen story. This is the thing that people should have looked at when they started doing post-regen stories to be like, oh, this is a thing because this sets up their entire era. This sets up your doctor. This does things in an interesting way that is 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 um just new and fresh. Looking at it, it's interesting to see how Holmes is still kind of writing Patrick Troughton here because no one's ever really done something like this before because it's not the first time where you can kind of just do whatever you want. This is the thing where he's kind of setting things up for the future. And it's interesting to realize that this is regeneration at its youngest, I suppose. Um, but, but more than that, I just, I, I love everything about it. I think that this is a great way to just look at how the show is going moving forward. And a lot, and not a lot of this are things that are carried on for later. There's a large, not subplot in season in episode one, but a runner in like the first episode that's about, um, uh, the doctor has basically crash landed on earth. He has been taken into a hospital to be, to recover and the press has gotten wind of this. So the press is interrogating the brigadier and unit about what they have found and putting the press in the story is interesting because it really just grounds you in reality. These are the people who are trying to get into the world of Doctor Who. And that's going to be much harder to deal with now because the doctor's stuck on Earth. And I just find that fascinating. I find the 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 yokel character, I forget his name, um, just drapesing around the, the wilderness and poaching things. I find him wonderfully Holmesian and also interesting in that, you know, we have like the common man in this episode to use it to use a, um, a Barton Fink term. Um, I find that those work. And I think that as a unit story, I think that 
you know, there are unit stories that I think are better than this. I think that Ambassadors of Death is probably a better unit story or a story that I enjoy more as a unit story. But in terms of setting things up, in terms of how the Doctor is going to be acting on Earth and how Unit's going to be interacting with him, I think that you can't do better than this. Like, this is unbelievable. And it's interesting because Holmes is robbing from himself to do this story. Holmes had come up at, at a certain point Holmes had come up with an alien invasion story or an alien landing on Earth story where the alien has two hearts. And this is the first time that's mentioned. And the only reason the Doctor has two hearts is because Holmes had always had an idea for a story that would be kind of like this story. And um, he just gets to co-opt it into a Doctor Who story. I mean, good for him because they're the people who are writing it for him. But at the same time, Holmes is also denying himself a lot of credit for creating something new by turning it into a into a Doctor Who story in the way that, you know, Robert Shearman decided he's not going to turn everything into a, into a Doctor Who story anymore. You see Holmes starting to do that here. And I find that that's almost inherently tragic. I don't find it totally sad because this guy's a legend in uh, Doctor Who mythology. Um, but looking at it, um, it is sad to me that he doesn't get credit for doing other things or things that are original or things that are like his own vision. Um, I like that so much of him is within the narrative language of Doctor Who. That's a great, great thing to have. But I also find it a little bit sad that he's not there. Um, and it's, I mean, it's it's a great story. All of this is to say nothing about the Autons. But I've been talking for so long that I, I'll toss it back to you, Scott. Um just with whatever thought you have next, just I think that this story is immaculate. I think it is just everything that you could want from the unit era and Doctor Who and and the Pertwee era and a post regen and a pilot, really. Mm-hmm. Um, just a pilot, um, I think. Yeah, no, it's it's it's. Uh, I mean, I really think that the comparisons are boundless with the Eleventh Hour. I really think that when Moffat came in um, as the showrunner, I feel like he pointed at Spearhead and said, that's what I want to do. Um, because it's so similar in its execution um, mm-hmm. of of reinventing the show, a show that's already been invented. Because uh, the 11th Hour is completely different from just the episode we just saw previously um, with the end of time. And... I, I I love the idea of – I love this idea and this vision for Doctor Who um, in the grand scheme, like series-long vision in that when a new creative team comes on, they reinvent the wheel. Um, and I, I think that that's the best part about Doctor Who is how – you can keep reinventing that wheel and but there's still there's still stuff there um to play with um like it's just such a pliable concept that it can fit into whatever you need it to and i think that that's i think that's great um and i think that's what is so special about doctor who uh in general is that you can do that uh and it makes me it makes me like I, I I really just can't wait to see who takes over after Moffat, um, just because I want to see what they do with the show next, mm-hmm. um, because I realize how exciting this moment is. Mm-hmm. Definitely, and and I mean that 
like just not to steal your thunder on that but it's like that that goes for everything like not not even the person after Moffat but the person who's after after Moffat like yes that, like and that's the thing that I'm so surprised by this is this is one of those instances where the show can become so much more than it was. The Mind Robber is a great example of that, where the Mind Robber you watch and you're just like, wow, I had no idea that Doctor Who could do something like this. This is the same way, because when I was starting to study Doctor Who and look at the past, like you just see the picture of John Pertwee like with the science thing, and you'd just be like, oh, so he just doesn't works for unit. That's a different, that's totally different from what I would ever imagine the show to have looked like. And I think that them doing that is one ridiculously ballsy um but also uh, shows a confident in confidence in like how much they trust that this show can do anything to 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 work here and i and i think that you're absolutely right about that is is there's it it does show more than i think other shows more their episodes show that you can do something new i mean the other example that i think of that comes readily to mind is probably arc in space where you're watching uh if you just watch the show in order arc in space feels like nothing that's come for the last five seasons like nothing has felt like anything like that and this the only thing that comes close is the invasion and even then the invasion was never so concerned with for lack of better world real world politics and culture like this is worried about i mean for god's sakes there's a part where they go to a wax museum um which is one chilling but also you know that's the sort of thing that you never would have seen on Doctor Who before this, I feel. Um, hell, it took... The Hartnell era didn't visit modern-day Doctor Who, uh, modern day England in a capacity that was quote-unquote real life until the War Machines. And even then, the only times before was like Planet of Giants, but even then, that's a that's not quite that. It's, it's a different sort of thing. Um, and so what you have is you have this, this show that's been staying away from earth and then it comes back to earth in a way that is real and grounded and i think i find that fascinating and it is the sort of thing where when this shows up it just says oh this can just be doctor who for five years and then you have like you could almost like they could do it this way but you could just label doctor who different ways like this could be like a doctor who spinoff called doctor who unit and then the next one could be doctor who gothic or whatever um and and i find that just a testament to how alive the show is and shocking because this is season seven like it took them six years to kind of reboot the show in a really hard hard way um and once you do this the show can go on forever along with you know because when Troughton when Hartnell regenerates into Troughton you can just continue doing the same thing that you've been doing um come up with a formula and redo that but this is such a hard reboot that it's just amazing. And a reboot in a way where they could have also started over the show at this point. They could have just been like, oh, no, John Pertwee was always the Doctor, and he's the first Doctor. Um, but they're like, no, let's continue the narrative. Let's reward the people who are still going, because this is still the same show. And I don't know if that ever occurred to them, but I just find that terribly, terribly fascinating and ridiculously encouraging for the show moving forward, because it is such a specific, clear vision um, and given by Robert Holmes. Um, and everyone else Sherwin Bryant and Dix um I love I mean I love all of that like it's just like what a what a great example of all of the things that um Doctor Who can do like just in one <laughs> in one story um <clears throat> so one other thing that I think we have to talk about because we haven't really talked about them uh let's talk about the Autons um 
who mm-hmm. are my personal favorite Doctor Who villains. Um, and I think that I'd liked them before I saw this. And when I saw this, I was like, oh, no, these are my favorite things ever. Um, because, whew, they are, they are effective. Um <laughs> Yeah, they're they're really creepy. Like that. The is it is it the um I think it's the cliffhanger of episode two. Yes, uh, where the where the mannequin just like steps off the off the thing behind the guy and then just starts walking up to him and then he realizes that someone else is in the room and slowly turns. It's horrifying. Oh my god! So yeah. creepy. Yeah. So creepy. Yeah. This um, is. I mean, this is this is a story that the first time I watched it, I turned out all the lights. And I don't know why I did that, but I turned out all the lights and I um, watched it in the dark. And what a rewarding experience that was. Um, it's just a truly – like it's it's one of those stories that – like and, and last last time I talked about how I can't wait to show Brain of Morbius to my kids. I can't wait to show my kids this story in the dark <laughs> because it will mm-hmm. scare the living crap out of them. Um, and it's not just like – the episode two cliffhanger is really just like – bone chillingly terrifying because you don't realize that he's been a mannequin that whole shot um but it's also the character of channing i think is deliciously horrific um just in the way where it's like i don't want to go anywhere near you like you mm-hmm. like he carries himself with such camp pomposity that i'm also terrified of him the whole time like truly terrified of him and then <clears throat> on top of that you also have um you also have autons just running around the woods and the design on the autons is like very simple it's just a dude in a rubber mask but the rubber mask is so chillingly designed and so simply designed that it looks grotesquely inhuman and in the way where Mm -hmm. you know the thing that is most scary in the world is people people are the scary thing these are perversions of people these are people who will shoot you these are people who have no remorse and who ape you but they are not you and holmes has such a good handle on what to do with them that it's 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 remarkable i don't i don't know if the autons have ever been more effective than this i think terror of the autons is a lot more fun with the autons i suppose but this is just impossibly iconic like just impossibly iconic in terms of how it uses them and and all of that um and Mm -hmm. interesting too because even the episode two cliffhanger like you can tell that martinus as director and maybe even holmes because maybe this was in the script but they don't show the Autons guns at the end of episode two. Um, that's actually mm-hmm. saved for episode three where it's like, what could make this more scary? Oh, he's got a hand, <laughs> his hand just popped down and pulled out a gun. Like that I think is one of the most interesting cliffhanger things because I love cliffhangers when they kind of reveal to you extra piece of information. Whereas this just kind of raises the stakes even more. It's one thing to see the Autons step off that dais. It's another thing to come back. And not only is it, do we have to watch it step off the dais again? We have to watch it pull out a gun. Like (laughs) that's crazy. Um, It's totally crazy. And I think that God, it's just a great use of these creatures. Um, Just amazing. So amazing. Um, and that's to say nothing of the phenomenal Auton attack from the store windows in episode four, which I think is one of my favorite Doctor Who set pieces ever. Um, oh yeah, (laughs) there's nothing scarier than watching the Autons just march down the street with that lifeless look on their faces and their guns drawn like, oh yeah, so good. And I think, I think one of the biggest mistakes with Rose is that they bother to redesign them. Mm -hmm. Um, 
because they weren't scary in Rose. They're scary here. Very much so. Very much. <laughs> There's terrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas the ones in Rose feel like uh, like unpainted um, gap. Uh, those those creepy gap man- mannequins. <laughs> um, the ones that were starred in all those commercials. Yes. The ones in Rose look like those, just like unpainted. Um, and so they're just, they're less scary than these ones. Like these ones just have like the real hair, the doll hair and the, 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 the empty cavernous eyes and just, oh, so (laughs) creepy. Um, they're so creepy. And then on top of that, because they're just masks, it actually helps because in order to do what they did in Rose, they do like the full bodysuit in Rose. But as a result, you have an actor underneath the bodysuit, so it bulks up everything as mm-hmm. a result. Um, whereas uh, only doing a mask allows you to cast uh, very uh, slender actors to play the Autons, which gives them much more of a mannequin quality. Yes. Um and it's mm-hmm. creepy. It's so it's, creepy. I think it's the same problem that New Who has with uh, the Cybermen, um, the Cybermen bodysuits. Yeah, where it, where it is getting away from the Cybermen right. not having mittens. Um, and <clears throat> and I think that that that's a great point because there is like I remember like looking at it and you know Davies in Rose wants you to be as scared of the mannequins or the Autons as you were here, but the kitschy low rent of it really gets to the heart of what Holmes is doing, where it's like Holmes... I, I consider Holmes a predecessor to Moffat in a lot of ways. I mean, Holmes is superior to Moffat, as far as I'm concerned, but Moffat is also concerned with the things that are normal, like normal life attacking you in a horrifying way. Imagining plastic coming to life and these mannequins just, like, attacking you. Like, how many times have you walked past a mannequin and thought, oh, that's not that scary? Holmes, as a writer, as an imagineer, shows, like, looks at these things that are scary. And he just goes, and he just goes, I'll bet you I could write something about them that is utterly, utterly terrifying. And then he does. And it ends up being just this impossibly iconic thing that, you know, scared John Barrowman for years. Like, and turned him, and as, as a Doctor Who fan, it scared him for years. Um... And it's just, I mean, it's it's amazing. I, and he does that a bunch. I don't think that he does it as much as he does it here. This is, like, the great example of that in terms of his canon. But I love that it's just about turning real life against you. And, like, what a there is no better statement for a show that is turning the real world into the setting for Doctor Who. There is, like, you can't do an alien invasion all the time, so why not have the mannequins attack you? And then, of course, at the end, you get the really weird tentacle alien. Um, but but it's it's a great way of, like, doing that. I think it's it's so smart. It's so smart for him to be doing. And I just, oh, I love it so much. Um, yeah. So, so much. Um, it's, uh, it's, I mean, it's it's really, it's a phenomenal story. Um, but it's, it's a thing, yeah. too, where I... Uh, I do. I. I mean, I like suggesting uh, stories for for new Whovians who are interested in the in the classic classic series, but um, at that trepidatious level where where you're just like, I'm interested, but I there's no way that I'm going to like it. Like they sort of have that attitude, um, and so I always like mm-hmm. suggesting stories for them. But oddly enough, I I don't think Spearhead in Space 
Spearhead from Space is one of them. Or if it is, I feel like it's one that they should watch after they've watched a bunch um, to to appreciate mm. it more, I think. Yeah. See, I'm I'm not sure I entirely agree. I see I see where you're coming from. I think that this is a story that um is very palatable. It's hard to come up with a Pervy story that's four episodes that isn't just like completely blowing it in the in the first minute. Um I find this one more palatable than a lot of the other Pertwee stories, but I feel like this is one that definitely gets better with age, where the longer you sit on it and the more you think about it and the more you know and the more you come back to it, I think you'll like it because um, I loved this the first time and I love it yes. even more now. Like, I, I feel like this is this is one of those Doctor Who stories, and not all of them are like this. Having gone and rewatched them, not all of them are like this, but this is one that definitely rewards you for being smarter and wiser and, and more mature in your tastes. Um, I, I, I can see not liking it, but I can also see myself not being friends with that person. Um, and I think that, but I think that I, 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 I'm reticent to always throw people just a great story. Like, you know, brain of Morbius. We talked about it last time. Um, I'm reticent to throw people that story where people are just like, Oh, should I watch this one? I'm like, well, you should save it. Mm -hmm. I think, um, and I and I think that like saving this one is not a bad idea. I mean, if you want to, if you must, I guess I can't really fault you for it. Um, well, it just it sucks. You... It sucks watching this one and then watching every other regeneration story and then being like, oh, that was the best one. <laughs> that yeah. first one. Well, that I from that was from that perspective, one. yes. If you're gonna watch one regeneration story first, then you should just watch Castro Valva um, mm -hmm. because you'll just be like, this is weird. Uh, yeah. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, uh, good first third doctor stories would for, for me be like three, three doctors, green death. Um, I don't know. Those, those are the two that I come up with is, mm -hmm. is, is, uh, three doctors and green death. Um, mm -hmm. and green death is so Plaza fun. Backs. It's so yeah. fun. Yeah. And, and those are cool. And I, and I think that like, this is one it's weird. I <laughs> just to get into my headspace when I tell people to watch Dr. Who it's weird seeing what comes in. Like you watch these immediately. Like deadly assassin is one that I, I say, regardless of how much you know about classic who, if you're just starting, you need to make deadly assassin a priority. Like, I think that that's one that you need to watch very quickly. I feel like spearhead from space is a great, like kickoff to the second act of your Dr. Who. Yes. Um, if you're breaking it into like thirds, um, I think that this is a great one to kind of throw in in your at the beginning of your second act or towards the end of your first act. Um, uh, but this is not one that you should save forever. Like this is not right. one that you should save for the end. I think this is a very important story to be watched um, at least early-ish because um, it's it is such a baseline and it is Robert Holmes being just unbeatable shocking thing about this. This is not even his best third doctor story. Like that's crazy. <laughs> it's, it's ludicrous to just consider the, the, the quality of this where this is so good. And this is in no way like, yeah, it's one of his best stories, but like, man, he has like a dozen good of his best stories. Doesn't he? They're like almost all his best story. It's ridiculous. Oh, definitely. That yeah. guy is so far ahead of everyone else. It's yeah. amazing. It's um, absurd. So amazing. Um, all right, so that's Spearhead from Space. Uh, did you watch the Blu-ray? Oh, God, did I watch the Blu-ray. Oh, right? Oh, my God. You know what it looked... It, it reminded me of, like, a... like a. It looked like a 70s movie. It reminded me yeah. of watching, like, Rosemary's Baby. Like, yeah. it was, like... 
Yeah, it, and it looks so good in in the way where it's like, oh man, a good like even like it was a good film transfer, but it makes me want all the rest of Doctor Who and Blu-ray. As soon as they figure out how to up upscale um videotape, we're in a really good place. <laughs> I don't know if that'll ever happen, unfortunately. I, we man can dream, Scott. Man yeah, can dream. Yeah. I think they could I I think it's totally possible to upgrade video to 480p and then upgrade all of the film stuff up to 1080p. Mm-hmm. That would be worth it to me for like a handful of stories. Definitely. Um, like caves. But, yes. Um Anyway, all right, so that's Spearhead from Space. Uh, before we wrap up, I want to remind you that today's episode was brought to you by InStockTrades.com, where you can purchase any paperback hardcover, omnibus, or absolute edition at 35 to 45% off, which sounds really ominous because of the crazy thunderstorm going on right now outside my house. Um, <laughs> plus, uh, where, where was that storm when we were talking about Brain of Morbius? That's what I ask you. Um, plus, new release specials at 50% off every week. And remember, all orders over $50 get free shipping. So thanks to InStockTrades.com. Um, um, next time we're talking, uh, the second doctor, Patrick Troughton and the enemy of the world, uh, the recently found, uh, the enemy of the world. Um, yeah. Which, which I mean, this is going to be a first time for both of us. Yeah. I mean, I, I know the story pretty well and I think that it's really remarkable, but, um, I've not, I've not watched it yet. So it'll be like <sighs> coming to new who coming to who for the first time. Um, that's really exciting. So, so exciting. And like. Written by David Whitaker, directed by Barry Letts, which I think is hilarious. Um, and uh, Patrick Troughton being the bad guy, which mm-hmm. is fantastic. Um, mm-hmm. Everyone should watch this one. Enemy of the World is one of those really, really special Second Doctor stories. And the thing about the Second Doctor is <clears throat> I find that he has a lot of really averaging middling stories, a lot of the base under siege, I suppose. Um, but when he does something special, like when he gets a special story, the mind robber, um, uh, uh, the other good is, uh, war games or macro terror. Um, you're getting, you're going to get something really special and enemy of the world is tremendously special for so many reasons. And Scott, I cannot wait for you to watch it. I'm so excited. I'm excited. I'm, I'm planning on watching it tomorrow and I'm, I'm I can't wait. I just <laughs> can't wait. Awesome. Um, all right. So we're talking about that. And then uh, that's that's coming up tomorrow, uh, which should be Thursday. And then on Friday, uh, you will hear our thoughts on the very first Doctor Who story ever, An Unearthly Child, um, along with all of our thoughts on An Adventure in Space and Time, the uh, the uh, Doctor Who biopic movie. Um, yep. So uh, exciting. Exciting. Um and then, uh, and then, day of the doctor should be up on uh, like Sunday night, Monday morning ish, something like that. Yep. So, uh, good stuff. Good stuff. Um, so we will, uh, we will, we will talk to you uh, next week. But in the meantime, listen to our other podcast, uh, the Mind Robbers Versus, where we're covering Justice League Unlimited. Um, that's also where you can find our thoughts on Thor: The Dark World, along with the Hunger Games: Catching Fire. Uh, early next week and then uh, the mind robbers our flagship podcast we just had an episode come out this week um and we're we're switching to a bi-weekly schedule uh so there will be less episodes but they will be more uh dense um so uh so that's definitely the case this week we had a lot of stuff to say about a lot of things um 
So that's the Mind Robbers. And then you can follow us on Twitter. I'm Twitter.com slash Scott Corelli. Also, Scott Commentary is where you can find my live tweets of things, uh, but not anytime soon. I don't. I have no idea when I'm going to be doing that again. Um, it'll be a while. <laughs> I'm I'm busy. Uh, Matt, Matt's busy too, but you can find him on Twitter. Oh, yeah, you can. Uh, Twitter.com slash go get in. Also, my alternate Twitter account, Twitter.com slash GD commentary, where I uh, will live tweet sometimes, but not really ever. Um, sometimes. <clears throat> uh, Way more often than I do. More than you do. Uh, but then again, I have, a, I have a project that I need to finish, so it's going. Um, so those two things, also classicalgallifrey.blogspot.com, where you can read a full post on Spearhead from Space. Just go find it. It's on the index on the top of the page, which I put there for you so that you could easily find things. Um... And that's where, that's where you can find me. Yeah. All right. Uh, we'll see you tomorrow with Patrick Troughton and the Enemy of the World. Bye. Bye, guys. <laughs> <laughs>